Let's turn together to the psalm that we've just heard, uh, sung together, turning to Psalm 87. Psalm 87, you can find that on page 494 in your pew Bible, Psalm 87, which given the, the psalm series that we've been in, a fitting end, we'll move now to our Christian Ed sermon next week. We'll continue on in the book of Matthew and then taking up those Lord's Days in sequence, seeking to know the story behind all those articles, not just in terms of the writing of the catechism, but more how we see the teaching of catechism, not just in doctrinal statements in the scriptures, but in the stories, in the narrative of the scriptures. And so we won't be able to do that on every Lord's Day, but for most of them, the ability to be able to pull out those true doctrinal statements we make from the stories of God's Word. And so we'll look ahead to that. But in the arrangement of the Psalms then, Psalm 87 coming after 86, because it allows us a an opportunity to have kids, maybe you've used a, a magnifying glass, and so not just to burn the anthill, but to actually look at things close up. And you take that and you're able to see something blown up large. And so that's what we see here in Psalm 87, having heard Psalm 86 last week. But we'll get there. Let's hear these words first. Psalm 87, a psalm of the sons of Korah, a song, hear now the word, of the living God. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in here. In her, for the Most High Himself will establish her. The Lord records as He registers the people, this one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. As far the reading of God's holy word, may He apply it to our hearts and to our lives this evening. Let's ask Him to do that in prayer. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we give you thanks once more for the word that you have provided to us. Father, for the blessings of being able to study verse by verse the scriptures to understand in a fuller, sweeter way your mission, your purpose, your grace, and your love. That, Father, you are able to work a great salvation not only for Israel, but for all the nations you will call to yourself. And so, Lord, we thank you for the faithfulness of your Son and the moving of your Spirit. And so, Lord, help me. You know my weaknesses. Help me to be able to speak this word plainly to your people. Father, help your people seated in this place. Keep them from sin and temptation. Keep them from, from Father, thinking of anything or everything else other than the sweetness of your word you provide. And so, Father, would you work in us that which is pleasing to you, we ask it. The praise of your glorious grace, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, children of God called to be saints, have you ever taken the time as quickly as you can to consider all of the ways in which our God is glorious, in which all the things that he has done are glorious things? And certainly on one level, those of you already spinning those wheels are saying, well, you could just say everything and you can finish that very, very quickly. But as those who have been made to behold the glory of the one and only, full of grace and of truth, 
we should be able to more than willingly and readily reflect on the glorious things that should be spoken of our God. And if you think about that, and even in those thoughts that have first started spinning themselves right now, you probably thought of majestic acts of creation. That's typically where our minds go when we start to think glory. Maybe they move to his sovereign control in all things in his providence. But let me challenge that with you this evening. Not to say that those things aren't glorious, but to posit that the calling of sinners to repentance and faith and salvation in Jesus Christ is the most glorious thing that is spoken of our God. Your very salvation, the reason that you have come and been gathered to him, that refuge and strength tonight, that cries his glory. For he makes his enemies his friends. He makes them his sons and daughters. He makes them co-heirs with Christ and of a glorious inheritance. And that kind of glory should be working something in us. Because in recognizing what we've received from him, now there are all sorts of people who need to behold that glory. They need to hear that glory too. It should move us then to our missional task to go and call sinners to the gospel, to make disciples of all nations. And that isn't just a Matthew 28 thing. It's not just an Acts 2 thing. Certainly that glorious thing was spoken in Genesis 3. This is the victory that I will give. This is the snakehead crushing that will happen. I will redeem my people. It's glorious. And so Jesus Christ then, as we know, is the word of the surety of every glorious thing spoken. And what that should do for us is we're confidence. And right away you're like, yeah, I'm not confident when I go out to talk to other people about Jesus, much less entering in the narthex and somebody asks me a question about Jesus. Because of the glorious things spoken, you should have every confidence to go out in a missional task that not only the Lord will be with you, but his word will go forth from you, not void, but accomplishing the very thing for which it is sent out. That you go out in confidence knowing that he will gather a people for himself from every tongue and tribe and nation, not because of you, but because that's his will and he chooses to use people like you and me. You have confidence for that. You're not wondering, will he save people? Will he gather a church? Will he bring them near? We know it. We trust it because we trust his word. We have every confidence. And these things in a very staccatoed, punchy, just statement after statement after statement way, is made for us in Psalm 87. That which Dr. Godfrey, one of our ministers, calls the greatest missionary psalm of the Psalter. I love that line. Because it is speaking of that which we look ahead to. It's speaking of that which we work toward, what our confidence is, how God will work in the wonder and the scope of that work. 
He also says that it's the expansion, and I love this too, of Psalm 86 verse 9. And so kids, that's that magnifying glass. Here now and having Psalm 87 is, let's think about verse 9 of the last sermon just a little bit more. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. That they are a part of those glorious things. And that should thrill us for the work of mission. It should thrill us for the work of evangelism. It should thrill us to be able to speak of God's ordinary, extraordinary way of calling the nations as we share the gospel with our kids. Here's the way that he will work. Here's the promise that he will fulfill. He will bring nations to himself, to his glorious works of redemption, to the knowledge of who he is, and in the end will bring them into his glorious presence forever. And so indeed, glorious things are spoken of thee, O God, of your saving purposes for all your chosen people among the nations. That is the theme that is made clear in this psalm. And so those glorious things that are spoken are of three things. And the first of those glorious things are spoken of his city. It's there in verses 1 through 3. Because as we sung and now that we've heard, the Lord has chosen Zion. He has chosen Jerusalem for his dwelling place. And in being students of that word, we recognize that he will send a new Jerusalem. That he will bring down a new heavens and new earth in which he will dwell with the nations called by way of those glorious things. And so this word then brings us instantly to temple. Here is where God has chosen to dwell, to meet with his people. But it wasn't about the building. That should have been learned in the exile. It was about his presence. Is God's presence among us? Is it near us? Is it working in us? Are we, those chosen, a people made holy by his own work and holiness, giving testimony to those glorious things? And why can we do that? Verse 1, on the holy mount stands the city he founded. It's a hard thing about hearing people talk about churches sometimes where this is my church or I helped build this church or this is my. We talk this way as though we've built something for ourselves. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. His foundation, his cornerstone, his building, his jewels, his temple, his dwelling place. That city will always stand unmoved because God is in the midst of her. And so a church will only stand unmoved if she is continually built upon the foundation of God's word, his prophets, and is found with God dwelling in her midst. Because there's a lot that calls itself church today that isn't church. Where is his word and spirit dwelling? And that city always stands unmoved because God is in his or in its midst. It stands again because it is what of, it, of what it's built and founded on. Isaiah 28, 16, Therefore says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. It's firm. It's fixed. That's the kind of refuge we need. That's the kind of dwelling we need. 
And so glorious things can be spoken of that city because it's everlasting. Because it can't ever be defeated. It can't ever be moved. Its walls and in its walls are found sure salvation because it's founded in the Lord himself, in his character, in his works, in his holiness. It is founded on every word and every promise. Which means that's where we need to go. That's where we need to be found. That's where our dwelling needs to be. And the wonder is that we can find glorious refuge, help, and rest in his presence and love. Why? Because he's here. Verse 2, the Lord loves the gates of Zion. He loves them more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Literally, in the way that the Hebrew is constructed here, it builds it. So not just does he love, but he truly loves. He really loves the gates of Zion. Because it's the place of his presence. It's the place of his worship. It's where his people are gathered. The gates of the city are where the life of the city happened. Yeah, you went to your business or you went to your homes or you did the thing, but judgments were rendered there, sales were transacted there, community life happened there. He's saying, I want to dwell with you, not just a city, not just inanimate walls. I want to be with you. That's where I long to be. It's where I love to be. It's there in the midst of a community of all those that I've called to myself that I find my great delight, my sweetest delight. And so among that people whom I have chosen to dwell should be known and spoken my highest glory. That to them those glorious things should flow off their lips like snaps of the finger. It should be ready in all times. Because I have communion and fellowship with this God. That all they are gives testimony to his grace and goodness. Every one of those glorious things. Verse 3, glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. The fact that he chooses a space and a place. And he gathers a people there according to his promise. But it's more than that. Because if glorious things of you are spoken, then they are spoken there. They are known there. In the assembly of the called, the precious and the saved, by your glorious and sovereign work of salvation, you continue to speak glorious things. And we will give testimony and praise of those glorious things. And that's why that thinking about these things is so important. Everything your God has done for you and in you and through you, every opportunity he's provided, every grace he's offered, every interaction for your benefit, every word of encouragement for your edification, every last thing that he has done, even the last breath you just took in order to fuel your mind for the work of thought. Everything that he has done in and for his people should be crying in your head and your heart and from your mouth, glory. Glory. That every one of them is a glorious thing. 
all things in every place of his rule and dominion should cry glory forever and that cry should be loudest from us. And the proclamation of that glory should be known in our worship and in our praise to God. And, because we'd settled to put the period before the and and done. We speak glorious things in worship. In this rectangle we gather in Sunday after Sunday. We will sing that praise here. We will do that thing. That This is what we do in worship. This is for us. And. It should be sounded here. And in the call to the nations to take up residence in Zion. And find life in the presence of a glorious God. It's got to be both. I love worship, but I hate evangelism. Then you don't love worship. It's that simple. If that wonder of what God has done for you in that indicative doesn't lead you to his imperative, then you don't know what Jesus has done for you. And the fulfillment of such words is and should be seen and known here in the church of Jesus Christ. Because you see, that's what we do in hearing the psalm. Okay, that was Old Testament Zion. That's Jerusalem. We're looking ahead to New Jerusalem. We're looking ahead to Zion. And he says, I've made a place for my name to dwell. Don't discount what I have blessed you with and given you now. Don't dismiss the glories of what it is to be church now. Because the promise doesn't remain confined in a singular city of God or in the places where she is called out and gathered. But those glorious promises of that city in which salvation is found is to be made known as far and wide as it may be known as a blessing to the nations. Not just for us. Let us not hoard that blessing. The nations need to know. Because as we have heard, others must hear of this city's salvation. They should be called into the church that they may hear the glorious things spoken. And the most glorious things that can be spoken is the gospel. Is the salvation of sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. The very thing that we speak and do here, they need to hear. They should be called into the church that they may hear glorious things spoken and find refuge and be saved. It's the longing of the prophet, of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 2, verses 2 to 3. And it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. But hear this, for out of Zion shall go forth the law. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Not, hey, why don't you people in the world figure out where you can get this? Because we're not delivering. 
We're a sit-in, eat-in restaurant. We're not bringing it to you. We're a church that has the gospel inside, but we're not going to you. It's the corrective of this psalm. It's the corrective of the word of the prophet. That city and its glory are not kept in a spot, but moving out. They are mobile. They must not be silent. They must not be hidden. Because in the confidence of his glory, we are the light of that city. We are the hope of that world. We go forth shining to the nations. Later, Isaiah 49, 6, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth, that it would go, that it would make disciples of all the nations. And so we are thankful that Zion is founded. The place of his presence is known in his people, in his church as they are built on that chief corner, which is Christ, but for a purpose, that the light of that city would shine to the nations, that its inhabitants would go forth knowing who they are and the glorious things that have been spoken and not stop speaking them, that others would be drawn to the glory of Zion, that they would be drawn to the salvation of God and made citizens and family in that better country and that in the second place. Because glorious things are also spoken of his citizens. We see that in verses 4 through 6. And yet think about that. I mean, for those of you who have been born in this country, not all of you, although you've become citizens later, but when you're born here, you're a citizen. You didn't do anything for it. You were born. And all the rights and privileges of such citizenship are now yours. Those born in Zion, its citizens, have done nothing to earn such a status or privilege. It's just grace. Israel was chosen, why? Because they were wicked awesome and super great and always obedient and way bigger and stronger and faster than all the other people. No. Because I love you. Because I chose you. Because of my good pleasure and my purpose. That's it. Brothers and sisters, we've not been chosen because of anything we've done. But only because of the work of Christ and the power of his spirit. That's it. We've been saved through the proclamation of glorious things. That's the truth. We, we, even us, who were once not a people in Christ, are made citizens of Zion, of his kingdom, and of his mercy. Ephesians 2, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Not a people, not a citizen, not apart. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us all both one 
and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He is our peace. His presence among us is that which works peace between man and God. And so he is then not only our sure foundation, but also our only access into that city and into the grace that we now stand. He is the only reason we have an identity as the children of God. And more, he's still calling a people to that who are far off. Strangers and aliens. He's still calling a people from all over the world to know him. It is glorious. And the glory is in that word, right? Verse 4, among those who know me. Not serve me, who have done for me, who are better for me, who have been obedient for me. But they know me. A glorious God who calls us to speak glorious things allows us to know him and calls us more and more to know him. That we can't ever stop coming to the end of the glorious things. We can know God and be known by him because of the glorious things spoken in Christ. What a privilege. What a blessing as citizens that among his people, among his church, is the fulfillment of the glory of, of Jeremiah 31, 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Why? For I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sin no more. And so there is a great blessing, even as we've heard again this morning, for for covenant children born into a covenant that they did nothing to deserve. Granted great promises, not because of anything they've done, but because they were born to Christian parents. But the wonder of this missionary psalm, not dismissing that or diminishing that at all, is that God has a greater missionary intention. Because what's shocking to us, and maybe not, but what should be if you study this psalm, is the list of peoples. Because as you start reading them, you start to think in the best way possible that that is a really messed up biblical list. That this would be, in today's parlance, all sorts of trigger words for Israel. I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, you can see Philistia and Tyre with Cush. You see, this would have been absolutely mind-blowing for the Jews. That yes, this is a song and it's what they would sing But the Jews took comfort in what? They took comfort in their birth and their lineage. This is who I can trace myself back to. The children of Abraham, the children of Isaac, the children of Israel. An identity as the true people of God. But yet this word now moves the narrative entirely and captures God's glory, not just in their salvation, 
but in the salvation of the nations, granting them a glorious inheritance and identity in him, as if what? And they're sitting there and saying, "Uh uh-uh, I am not brother with Egypt, with Rahab. I am not sister with Babylon. The enemies of Israel for almost all of time, that which spoke slavery and exile, uh uh-uh. And he says, family. Philistia, the enemy we could never get rid of in Israel entirely. Family. Tyre to the coast, all the way to Cush, to Ethiopia, to farthest Africa, at least in the known world at that point. Family. This one was born there, they say. He makes citizens of the greatest enemies saying, I will bring even them to myself. There is no one too lost, too broken, too far at enmity with me that I cannot change them and save them altogether by the glorious things spoken. I will bring even them to myself. All of my people, even from all of those people, will be brought to Zion. Verse 5, and of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one, in parlance, all of them were born in her. For the Most High Himself will establish her. It wasn't about them. It wasn't about what they were. It isn't about what they had done. It isn't about that past. It isn't about that darkness. It is about what I will establish. And the word that I will work. It's repeated again. Each and every one of those chosen people was born in Zion. And so the distinctions of where they've come from, when they came, charter member, new member, all of that, gone. Family. One people founded upon the promise of Christ. Your family. Which means you have space and place among my people by way of nothing you have done but because of my work and my calling. And he takes it a step further with another repeat and another action. Verse 6, the Lord records as he registers the peoples, as he writes it down and says what? This one was born there. It is the glorious expansion of verses 4 and 5. But still we're sitting there and saying, but, but that doesn't work for us. This is the struggle we have in understanding our citizenship. I mean, I was born somewhere else, but now I've come here, and so I've been granted citizenship, but I haven't really... you got to leave that. That isn't who you are anymore. Why? Because he's recorded those who belong apart from anything about them, where they're from, and what they've done. It is the reality of his spoken word of promise, which is written in what? Where is it recorded? In the book of life. This is the illusion in the psalm. 
They have space and place because they're mine. I have written it down, and in the last day, that book is going to be open, and I will say mine. Mine. It says in Hebrews 12, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. There will be no distinctions anymore because he will have redeemed a people that were not his people but are now his people by the blood of Christ. That's why all his people are citizens. This one was born. It's repeated three times. They will be born. Why? Because they will be born again. Because salvation will be real. And in Christ, those who were enemies will be counted as born in Zion in the life that he provides. Dr. Godfrey writes, the nations are not just adopted into the family of God. Not just, oh, well, you can come in. They're not just proselytes. They are reckoned as those native-born. As though they had never been separated or alienated from God ever. Because of the glorious majesty and power of Christ. Which means that all of those prophecies And all of the blessings of Zion are fulfilled and founded in Christ and his church. That's Paul's joy in Ephesians 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That continued ramp, I'm going to bring you closer and closer and closer built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy Zion, into a holy temple in the Lord. Consider the glorious things spoken to you of what it is to be a citizen. We're no longer strangers and aliens, but family, brothers and sisters, which means that he's still gathering those who are our brothers and sisters. Those who will be born again to a living hope in the now. And he uses us to make that glory known to them. But will we? We heard it this morning, we're going to be faithful to coming to our kids and we're going to share it with Christ and and we're going to talk as covenant community and, and for our own we're going to do, we've got lost brothers and sisters in the world that need to hear about Jesus, who don't know their brothers and sisters yet, who don't act anything like it, but who need to hear glorious things from us, that call to citizenship in a better country. A call to the family that they do not know and have never had. Will we make that praise glorious? Because that should shape our celebration and worship 
and in life. And that briefly in the last place, it's glorious things of his celebration in verse 7. That those punchy little notes continue to bring us even to the reality of this taste of the eternal Sabbath. To our rest and worship in the Lord. Because it is meant to drive us again. Not to the celebration of anything other than the glory of God and his cause of calling a people to himself and making them sons and daughters in Jesus. That's what we're doing here. That's how we find rest in Christ and God alone. And so we've been gathered as sons and daughters in Jesus to praise his glorious grace freely given us in the one he loved. And so that should bring us in a greater desire for worship. A greater desire to be unified as a church, but more in worship and in our praise. As his holy name, as a people is brought into his holy presence in Christ. And again, that's ultimately the point of Psalm 86 verse 9 on the page before. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Now we have a context for what all the nations looks like. And what that coming in worship will be. And how he'll be glorified. Because we worship now in the sure hope that this promise in its fullness will be realized. And that should fuel in us both worship and evangelism. Not just one or the other. It's both as they continue to fill each other's cup in the right way, in the praise of the glorious things of God. Singers and dancers alike shall say, the praise of God's glorious grace, now and in that last day, will be heard and seen. All hands on deck, all you all should be hearing this and seeing this, And be used of making this praise glorious and most glorious in the last day. When that whole body is joined together in the most glorious rejoicing. It's the praise of Psalm 149. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. As we gather for worship, brothers and sisters, are we celebrating glorious things? Is that our mission when we wake up on a Sunday morning? Or when we wake up from our nap on a Sunday afternoon? I am going to come to celebrate the glorious things of the grace of Jesus. Not anything else. Not any of the other petty garbage that could get in the way of that. But that. We celebrate glorious things because he is here in our midst now and will always be in and among us together. It's the promise of Zechariah 2. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord, and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst. 
and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. That a word continues to be proclaimed from pulpits, faithful pulpits all over this world. That a people joined together in him, wholly reborn in his image, glorified to enjoy him in full, will come to know fully and deeply and profoundly a single truth now and forevermore. Verse, the end of verse 7, all my springs are in you. All my joy, all my peace, all my blessing, all my goodness, all my strength, all my vitality, all my refreshing, all my hope now and will ever forever be found only in you and what you have provided in Jesus. And we will be gifted an eternity to begin to scratch the surface of that thing. All my springs are in you. What a glorious thing to speak to Zion. What a blessed missional promise is spoken. It's an image of that which will be ours in full. Even as we have a small taste now. As we gather here for worship. So keep considering those glorious things of his presence, of his promise, of his great salvation, of his calling of the nations, of his forever worship. But then speak it and sing it and dance it and play it in whatever you do. Make the glorious things of God known. Not just to each other as you worship, but to the nations and calling them to God, to Zion, that they would find all their springs and blessings in a glorious God and in the words of a glorious gospel. Do that with confidence. God, you will gather a people. You will gather a church. So cause me to go out boldly to that missional calling. Lord, give me wisdom to make you known to go out and call my brothers and sisters to saving faith in Jesus Christ, to him whom glorious things will be spoken and sung and danced and praised forever. Amen. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beauty and the wonder of this missional psalm. Lord, what a missionary task in the beauty of the city you have established and the citizens, the family you make for yourself. And the celebration of that gospel which is known now in small but father in that last day. Where everyone will echo holy, holy, holy. And every knee will bow. And you will gather your people. And we will go further out and further into the new kingdom. To the glorious Zion prepared for all of your family. For all of your chosen. And so, Father, we thank you in your mercy that we are a small part. But, Father, your Son has not returned yet. Which means, according to your promise, that all the harvest has not been brought in. That there are still those needing to be called to repentance and faith. Who need to put their hope and trust most fully in the saving work of Jesus. 
And so, Father, embolden us. Grant us that heart of expectation, of longing, in that confidence of knowing, Father, that as, as often as we go out and proclaim that gospel, you will work in it what you've chosen. That it's not up to us to save the nations, but to make known the hope of the nations in Jesus. Father, equip us and send us out with that longing and that heart. Not expecting you to deliver them here. That we will be an Eden church, but that we will go. And we will bring the good and the blessing and the delicious wonders of the gospel to the nations. That we will seek them and find them and make Christ known to them. The glorious things of the gospel. In thanksgiving for that gospel you have effected in us. And so Lord, grant us this hunger. Grant us this desire. For you are glorious. And you have spoken these glorious things to us in Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.